Okay, so this is the first time we are doing all three things. We have people here, we are live, and we have audio for later, and it's different talking to all different types of people. Okay, so before we get started, we're going to pray, and does anybody want to? If you don't want to, it's okay, I'll pray. pray. I know it's different when it's live, right? Okay, I'll pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful that we can get together. We're thankful that um, you've seen us through and you're continuing to see us through these strange times that we're in right now. And we just lean on you for um, just for strength and for wisdom and help us now as we look at this book and uh, at your word and just let it be um, useful to us in the future and in our lives right now. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So. We are doing this book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, as most of you already know. And it is um, about Nabil Qureshi. And yes, it took a while to learn how to say his name and to learn all the words, but um, still not there yet. But he is somebody who grew up as a Muslim from the day he was born. His dad whispered into his ear a Muslim prayer. um, And it's about his journey to eventually becoming a Christian later uh, during his college years. Or I think actually like in his graduate or doctoral years. So he was an adult by the time it happened. But it's a long journey. So... um, Let's see. So last week we looked at how he was stuck in between two worlds, a world of and not just religions, but of Eastern thought and of Western thought. And we all grow up in the Western thought where um, critical thinking is valued, individual rights and individuality, you being different from everybody else, that's really valued that makes you stand apart from people. And we looked at in the Bible how that is, um, that's... Um, not echoed, but it is um, embraced. It is encouraged by God to be an individual. That that is a good thing and that reason that you need to use your brain to think things through. But it also talks about authority and that you are to honor authority, which is more of the Eastern thought, that whatever your authority is, whether it's a Muslim Uh, leader in the religion of Islam, or it's a Buddhist leader, or it's a governmental or a cultural leader that you're supposed to honor them. And it's a much more of a honor-shame culture versus ours is a, um, is a, of what our Western culture is an innocent guilt culture where you are either seen as innocent or you are guilty. And that we struggle with guilt where the Muslim culture, it's more of that doesn't really matter as much if you're guilty until you get caught. We talked a little bit about that. But it's also that um, in the East, go back to the individual thing, is that being part of your family and your family reputation and your family um, bonds are much, are often typically more important than being an individual. Where in America, for us, 
more so even in America than even Europe or uh, the South American countries that we are focused on you and less about your family. It's okay for you to break away from your family, not a big deal, but um, and neither of these things are wrong and neither are totally right. That There is a balance and we looked at that. So why are we looking at all of that? What does that matter? Why is that important in this book? So we can understand the culture better. Right. We want to be able to understand them, Muslims in particular, but it, a lot of things apply to if they're Hindu and Buddhist as far as culture-wise, if they're from India or China, that we want to understand how they grew up. We don't... We... To make it less unknown when things are unknown to us that's when we're unsure of them we are cautious we don't uh, we're not quick to open up to somebody if we don't understand where they're coming from so that can that understanding that will help us in um, hopefully if if you build enough of a relationship being able to talk to them about faith about their faith about your faith and open a dialogue about it Okay, so we left off then on a cliffhanger because it ran out of time. We can only do an hour, so you guys are probably pretty happy about that, I know. But um, Nabil was, had returned to Scotland, where was one of the places where he grew up during his, um, up until like middle school years. And he was going through a market that was uh, is, Islamic um holiday celebration, so there are tons of Muslims there, huge tons of people. Think of like West Jackson Corners on old-fashioned days times like 10. That like those amount of people, and you, he's looking for his friends that are now 10 years older, and he doesn't even know what they're gonna look like, he doesn't even know if they're there, and he says, he, he prays to God and says, God, help me find them. and. You might think to us that's natural, like, oh, I'll just, as I'm walking, I don't even have to close my eyes, I'll pray for help, for whatever I need, or whatever it might be. But for a Muslim, that is totally alien to them. Because every time they pray, it is a prayer from the Quran, or a prayer from one of their other like history books about um about Muhammad. So it's always a memorized prayer that they pray. They don't just ad-lib, pray from their heart. That's not what they do. They don't communicate on a relationship basis. So this was a different thing for Nabil to do because he was like, there is no memorized prayer that says, help me find my friends. What am I going to do? So he thought about this one prayer that was like for finding something, but I guess they use it at funerals. And he's like, oh, I shouldn't use that one. So he just prays uh, normal prayer and it's, it is it's a weird thing okay if somebody just told you this story and you didn't know about them you would kind of wonder about them but he sees I think it's it's either red or purple streak and a gold streak like that goes like through the air like three dimensionally that he follows and finds his friends like picture like some sort of like Disney movie like this streak going through the air like that's what he sees and it leads him right to his friends and 
they have a great time together and he doesn't even think about it like same like we do we pray for something it happens and then you forget that you even prayed about until later and then he's back at night back in his room and he thinks about it he's like wow I can't even believe that happened like I can't even tell anybody that that happened but this is this is his first personal experience with God he's never prayed to God like that before and it's it's unique it's a milestone in his life and the question though is who did he pray to I mean if we look at the Quran his now it's one god there it's just it's the same it's Supposedly the same God that Abraham followed, that then Ishmael followed, one God, and they call him Allah. So who did he pray to? Did he pray to the God that we find in the Bible, or did he pray to Allah? You don't have to answer it. Just to think about it in your mind, what did... And it was answered, right? That's what makes it tough. If he just prayed a prayer and there was no answer, no obvious answer, you would be like, oh, yeah, he prayed to Allah, right? Because clearly he just didn't answer him. False God, right? But it's more difficult than that. It's a tricky question. But here's the first thing is that you have to think about it, stepping outside of the story. Because Nabil was a real person. He wrote the book and he put that in there as God answered his prayer as a Christian when he wrote the book. He said God answered my prayer and showed me where my friends were in this miraculous way. So he is pointing to the triune God, the Trinity God, the God that you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that's who led him to it. So I will say that God is the one who knows your heart. He knows where you're coming from when you're praying. He's the one when you can't articulate it. He understands still what you're saying. So on the flip side, though, you still have to wonder because the God that is Allah that's described in the Quran He is not the same as God in the Bible. He is extremely violent. If you were to read it, you'd see that there's not a lot of mercy that he offers Allah in the Quran. He is very flippant. It's like he could be treat you well one day and treat you horribly the next. There's not, he's not consistent. And more, most importantly, he offers no redemption. That Jesus is not the Savior. There's not a way to be redeemed, to come back to him, except by doing good works. So, clearly, God and Allah are not the same thing. Let's go ahead and turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Verse 37. Sierra, would you read that? 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Okay. So, anyone who comes to God the Father, he will not send him away. Even, I would go this far, because he's someone, what he's asking for is not wrong. He's coming with a pure heart about it. He is, it's not in a bad way. And even though he is ignorant of who he is praying to, he is still seeking He's seeking a real God. That's what he is looking for. Okay? He's not... um, And you'll find out as we go through it. He's not aware of who Allah is really described as in the Quran. He doesn't know all the things because... Just like there are Christians out there who don't understand every aspect of the Bible or have a very... um, infantile grasp of the Bible there are many Muslims who don't understand everything so he is coming out of a naivety about what he's looking for and really the last thing to say about it besides Nabil that his testimony of you have to just trust him what he said because of his life is so he's so bold for the gospel and he truly is a follower of Jesus in the end that God can do whatever he wants. If God decided, because he knows everyone's thoughts, whether you're a Christian or not, if he decided, you know what, when Nabil prayed that, even though he didn't really know who he was praying to, I'm going to answer that because I know that that is going to cause him to look for me more, to look for something deeper. So I'm going to answer it. Okay? Um. So this becomes an extremely important aspect or extremely important experience that he has where it opens up a personal conversation with God and really puts him on that path to find God. Next pivotal event that we didn't quite get to last week and we just need to touch on before we look at tonight's stuff is this was a huge thing that happened for a lot of people it was in the United States but especially for him because he was Muslim was that 9-11 happened which I don't think any of you teens that we have were born yet maybe even so but you all know about it. It's when Al-Qaeda attacked the World Trade Centers um, with uh, planes um, in a suicide attack and destroyed them in New York City. And they all did it all in the name of Islam. They said, we are serving Allah. Allah has commanded us to enact uh, jihad, which is, like, um, which is a holy war. And even Al-Qaeda, and this is a thing that I didn't pick up until recently, because that word, I don't know if we got to it yet in here, but it's in here, and it means the way. That's just what the word means in Arabic. It means the way. And that describes other things in Islam that has nothing to do with being a terrorist organization. They just hijacked that word and took it for their own. Just like 
we have stuff happen that all the time in the English language where people will hijack a word and be like, this belongs to our group now, and the meaning changes. It just does. So that's what happened with Al-Qaeda, or Al-Qaeda, however you pronounce it. And But this was a terrifying moment for Nabil because he was at, I think, high school. It might have been college. And his sister is there. They used to drive together, and his dad calls him. I think it was probably 9 a.m., 10 a.m. when it happened. And he's like, where are you? Like, he's frantic. You need to come home now. Find your sister. And Nabil is just like, why? And he's like, because, David, Muslims, people who claim to be Muslim, attack the World Trade Center. They're going to, you don't know what people are going to do to you. And especially for his sister, who wears a burqa that covers her face. Oh, probably just her hair and her face, not the extreme ones that you see in the Middle East where you can only see their eyes, but it's obvious that she's Muslim. So nothing bad happened to him. She actually had a really nice police officer that saw her at the gas station and said, hey, you should probably go home. It's not safe for you to be out. So she went home right away. He explained it to her. Um, But it was something that would change the interaction between Muslims and the rest of Americans who were not Muslim forever or for a very long time. You're really only just now seeing where people don't hold hold the actions of terrorists over regular everyday Muslims' head anymore. Where people are more accepting, you know, they see they don't move away from them in an airport when they're around, but early on right when it happened it was it was chaos for them and it really made it difficult put a up a divide between muslims and christians in the world and um later in the book he'll address more about that he'll talk more about why certain sects extreme sects that believe in um muhammad believe that they need to be violent about spreading their their Muslim kingdom or their Muslim um, ways. So he'll explain more why that's the case. But for the majority of Western Muslims, Muslims who live in Europe, who live in uh, America, Canada, Mexico, wherever, they are not, they're extremely nonviolent. Even... Uh, Nabil's family, their specific denomination, they're pacifists. They don't even believe in uh, any type of violence. The only reason Nabil's dad was in the Navy was because his dad did, um, I want to say it was some, it might have even been like he did work on the nuclear engines. He wasn't like somebody who manned the guns or any part of the violent action in the Navy. He just made sure the ships ran and things like that, why he was able to do that. So, but this is something where you'll see it again and again through your lifetime that there will be fear. There is fear of the unknown, of what you don't know and what you don't understand. And that's where it was with the Muslims. We didn't know about them. There, Still, it's 1% 
of people in the U.S. are Muslim. That's extremely small. And then you want to come to Orleans County or maybe many, many other rural counties. What percentage do you think are Muslim in, in those counties? It's very small. It's just the nature of it that that's how it is. But when you guys go out there, if you go to college or if you go take a job in a city or you move away from here, you might find all of a sudden that you're around many, many more. And knowing and understanding their culture makes it not so, not so distant. So then you can make a connection with them, okay? All right. So we're going to get into part three, the part that I read this week. You got some of you listened to. And the part three of the book is titled Testing the New Testament, okay? So this part of the book, we see Nabil is now in college. He has, um, shortly after going to college, he joins the debate team there. And he meets, they go, they're going to go away on this trip where they're going to go compete, I think, statewide against other colleges. And he meets his, who's going to be his lifelong friend, David Wood. And they meet each other, and they really hit it off right away. Um, they both have a uh, way of uh, intensely joking with each other, um, where they're, they both have thick skin about things, and... What he notices, though, one night is that they both, when everybody else goes out, they're going to go out clubbing and all whatever else. They both decide they're not going to go out, and they just hang out in the hotel room that they have together while they're there. And Nabil, as he's unpacking his stuff, noticed David pulled out his Bible and was reading his Bible. And... If you, from what we've known about Nabil already, as soon as he sees an opportunity to share Islam, to be an ambassador, he's right there. So he instantly says, oh, you uh, really into the Bible? Are you like a, I think he calls them a, not a holy roller, but a, I don't know, something like, a, are you a serious Christian or something like that? And he's like, yeah, pretty serious. And he's like, you know, the Bible, the Bible is uh, corrupted. Do you know that? And David, now, think about it. Just, you don't have to say, just think for yourself. If someone were to tell you that out of the blue, what would you say? Would you even, would you say, no, it's not? Would you say, I don't know. Like, what would you, just think about that. Well, David, because he knows stuff, he is somebody who, you could say he's a Bible nerd as far as like the history of the Bible that he is. And he says, yeah, I know it's corrupt. And that really, Nabil is like, what? A Christian is admitting the Bible is corrupt? This is going to be an easy argument to win. And... um. So we're going to we'll get into that now. I don't want to just retell everything that I read, but like Nabil like most Muslims comes from the standpoint that the Bible has been corrupted and altered and you cannot totally trust what it says. The Quran, Muhammad said in a couple of his um his 
messages that he channeled from Allah. He says that the Bible has been corrupted, that it's not what it was originally, what God originally gave the Jews and the Christians, and you can't trust it anymore. They've messed it up, and you just can't. Their words have been changed and all that. Now, um, Muhammad... um, was supposedly sent to correct what was wrong in the Bible. And that's why he made the Quran, or why it was given to him to send down that this trumps whatever is in the Bible, because it's corrupt now. Okay, that's what they believe. Um, So, here's my next question to you. What do we believe about the Bible? Do you know what we believe about the Bible? I mean, I'll be honest, at your age, I had no idea. I didn't know until, I really didn't know until I read this book, um, probably six years ago. I I probably read it for the first time six years ago. And because I never knew anything about any of the sides, what the Muslims thought or anything, I'd never met anyone or really had a friendship with anybody and until I read this book and then you know books usually have sightings where it says other books that they've read or other people that they've talked to the experts and I started going down a rabbit trail of all these things like it was like whoa I didn't know and there is a whole lot of stuff there there are people who have devoted their entire lives to just studying manuscripts that are in Greek. That's all they do. They mem- they, which a manuscript script is an original copy of the Bible. Um, typically handwritten copies. And before we go into all the down the rabbit hole, let's go to Psalms chapter 12. Because the first thing, before we get into like the history and the factual stuff, the tangible things that you can touch and see, I want to look at what, why we believe it because we're Christians. Because there's tons of people that can be historians that are, don't believe in God, or maybe they're just agnostic that find truths out about the history of the Bible. But there's a more important part, the deep part of it. So let's read chapter 7 of, or sorry, chapter 12 of Psalms, verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to read, I'm going to read verse 6. Because I wanted to do six and seven. I wrote that down wrong. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And then, as we just heard, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Perfect example of why context is important in the Bible. You've got to read the verses before it to understand it all. Um, So... 
this is um, David is writing this and he's saying the words of the Lord are preserved forever. God and but besides them being preserved forever, that God preserves them through time for them to be available, that they are pure as silver has been tried in a furnace seven times. So what that means, and we've talked about this before, that if you want pure gold, or here it's talking about silver, if you want pure silver, you have to take that silver for, that you dug out of the earth, and you have to melt it all down, and then all the bad things that aren't silver, rock and whatever else, other metals will float to the top, and you skim those off. Well, he's saying, we did that seven times. That's how pure the silver is. We got rid of everything, burned off all the bad stuff. He's saying that's what the Bible is, is that it is that true that there is nothing that is wrong in it, that God's word is perfect and that is preserved forever. Okay, so of course this is outlining what we, that we believe that God is in control of everything and he keeps the Bible true and accurate and um, so that people can know and find out the good news about Jesus. That's what the Bible, the whole purpose of it is it points to Jesus, not just the new Testament, but the old as well. And now the other question is, well, what does that do for you? If you don't believe in the God in the Bible, if you don't believe what he says, the spiritual side of the Bible, like a Muslim, they don't believe they said it's been corrupted. I can't trust that anymore. What's that do for you? Well, the other thing is that there are ways, there are ways to know that the Bible is the same as when the, I, the people who were there with Jesus during his life witnessed the cross, witnessed the first spread of Christianity, to know that what they wrote down is still the same. What you have today is accurate to what they first wrote down. And you might say, well, yeah, you probably never thought about that before. That is it the same thing that Mark 2,000 years ago when he wrote down that Jesus healed a leper? Is that what he really wrote down? You probably never thought about that before, right? <laughs> but it's important, and I'm glad for all the people that do this work, because it's important to do it. And even though it just proves that, I'll give, spoiler alert, you can trust the Bible. It is accurate, okay? But somebody had to do that to prove it. It's kind of like you do the proof in math, even though you know that that thing works, your teacher still makes you do it so you understand it, okay? Well, most of the focus that we're going to look at is the New Testament. And throughout this whole book is the New Testament because that's what really matters. Okay, the Old Testament, yes, it matters. Well, there are things that prove that it is accurate. But the New Testament, first of all, is important because it's about Jesus. Like we said at the beginning of the series, everything hinges on Jesus. That's the most important thing. That's how we, his death, resurrection, and the fact that he was a real person is what everything that we believe hinges on. And that's also the key sticking point for Muslims. Because to them, what Muhammad said was, 
Jesus was not the Son of God. And that makes it, everything they did doesn't even matter. Anybody could do that. But it matters because they were the Son of God. So, like I said before, well, hold on, before we get into that, another analogy. You guys know Superman, all right, everybody knows who that is, all right. Probably the lamest superhero because he's invincible, right? Like, who cares if he can't, he, you know he's always going to win. There's never that, did he make it moment, you know? And, except for one thing. What is that? Kryptonite. There's this one, and there's a long story, but it's basically this rock that glows that if he gets near it, he loses all his powers and he becomes weak. And then the enemy can just tie him up and defeat him. So, there is... If there were a kryptonite for Christianity, if it existed, this is what it would be. Okay, It would be proof that Jesus never lived, that he did not die on the cross, and that he never rose from the dead. Okay, If you can prove those things, the Bible, certainly the New Testament does not matter. Nothing in it matters. Because... There was no Jesus, or he didn't rise again, so he's not powerful. He's just a regular human. Then you would have to go back and you'd have to say, if you still believed in the same God, you'd have to say, I guess I'm going to become a Jew and I'm going to look for the Messiah. I'm going to wait for him to come. I'm going to throw away the New Testament and I'm just going to keep the Old Testament. Then you just have to deal with proving the Old Testament, which that's a whole related thing, but different. Okay. So that is the whole, that is one of the angles that Muslims use to try to devalue, to try to disprove the New Testament. So ground zero of what we, um, the premise to the whole argument for it being accurate. Now, this is looking at it historically. This is doing using, like, I don't even know what the studies are called, I'll be honest. It, I think it might be epistemology. is like the study of texts and histories. But ground zero of what has, of what, um, has to be is that the four Gospels, they say that Jesus lived, ministered, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. That's what each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say. Okay? And now, next time, we are going to look at the next part of the books and what they did. Uh, and in the next part of Nabil's book, he's going to look at that that specific event of Jesus dying on the cross and did that happen because the Muslims say that he did not die on the cross and I believe I talked a little bit about it but there's a lot more he's going to go really in depth on it Um, but tonight we are just looking at the the books themselves are the history in the gospels did that stuff really happen and The question is, for it to be wrong, is did somebody change it? Did somebody, or did we lose it? Did you just lose the copy 
of one of the Gospels and it's gone. You know, that could easily happen when you only have one of them. Somebody wrote one and then, oh no, I left it in the restaurant and it's not there when I went back. Like, okay, that's possible. So this is, this is how we got to get our Bible today. Okay, this is a brief, brief history because it's long, but I'm going to sum it up as quickly as I can here. The Gospels were written by four authors. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was an eyewitness. He knew Jesus. John was an eyewitness. He knew Jesus personally. Mark, we believe, is the nephew of Peter. So he either he wrote it down for Peter, or they are all the things that he learned from Peter. And then Luke is somebody who traveled with Paul, but did not know Jesus personally. But he was like... Picture, think of like a historical book writer. That's what he was. He went and he interviewed hundreds of people that knew Jesus personally. He took all the information, compiled it together. That's why his is one of the longest and has the most historical data in it because that's what he did. That's just, he was, he was more specifically a lawyer, but lawyer is a broad term the farther back in history you go for what you do. Okay, so those guys are the four ones who witness, who, who did it. Some of them witnesses, other ones second, you could call them like second generation witnesses, only removed by one person. Okay, now, from those Gospels that were written, they were written within the first, either within like the first hundred years of Jesus' death. If you wanted a copy of that, you had to take... That Bible, put it down, get your pen, or whatever they used, and word for word, period for period, comma for comma, write it down. All the way, now, easier because it's just the New Testament, right? Not as thick, not too bad, but even the New Testament is twice as big as this. This is a Quran. It's half the size of the New Testament. Okay? So, it's like doing a good, like two chapter books of like good, nice novels. Go through, write them all down. And then you give it to someone else and they copy it. And then they give you yours back. And people keep doing this. And this happens for a really long time. This happens for um, this happens for about 1,500 years, 1,500 years that people are doing it by hand until Gutenberg comes along and makes his printing press. You guys know about that. Okay, good, good. So, the problem that people say is, well, and you might have already thought of this, well, somebody's hand copying this. How easy is it to make a mistake? I mean, just think about when you write a paper for school, you go back, you proofread it, or your mom proofread it, or your friend. How many mistakes are in there? Oh, now, granted, they're not typing. There's probably more mistakes when you type than when you write by hand, okay? But here's, and you're like, aren't there like a lot of mistakes? The answer is yes. 
there are a lot of mistakes. But here's the thing: you got you can't just say, "Okay, yep, can't be right." There's got to be a, t- a lot of mistakes in there because there are, people made mistakes when they were writing it. Because let's think about this. Let's take for an example. Let's say John three sixteen because we all know that one. What if it said? You found a copy, a handwritten copy. It said, for God did not love the world. He gave his God, only forgotten. So, you know, all that. Now, there, and then, but there are a lot of other ones that say, for God so loved the world. And the, the not's not in there, okay? And you compare like 50 of them together and only one of them has that mistake. What are you going to conclude? That's the one that's wrong. All these other ones say this. Now, here's the thing. I can't even remember. I didn't write it down. I'm sorry. But there are a lot of mistakes. It's like thousands, hundreds of thousands of what they call textual variations. Variations between the books. Now, most of those are articles. So if somebody left out a the, an a, an an, those types of things. right? How often do you do that when you write? Quite a bit. I do that. I have one where I am constantly switching. I will accidentally put in it instead of is. I don't know why. Just when I type, I do that sometimes. You know, everybody has their things where they do that. Those are easy, right? You can say just by the context of the sentence, anybody proofreading it can say, oh, they left the the out. They left the an out. So you drop off tons of these errors just by that. There's also periods, commas, colons, all those types of things that are also mistakes that not a big deal if it's not there, right? You can figure it out. There are very few, and I've listened to debates where they've debated about the ones where it's a bigger error, where they're not 100% sure, but it really doesn't, if you understand the context, you can figure out what they were, what they missed, what they made an error on. Um, here's the genius of God's timing, though. Because remember, God, we read in Psalms that God preserves the text. And he also chose when the Bible was, the New Testament was going to be written and like caught on fire, spread everywhere. Imagine if this was written now. No, we're not even going to go with like 50 years ago because that would still be easy. You know, just print thousands of books, spread them out. They're all the same, right? Think if it was written now. You wrote it in Microsoft Word. You emailed it to thousands of people. Better yet, put it on a website. Anybody can come and take it. What happens if somebody goes in and hacks your website totally changes the whole meaning of it and then that's the one that's out there that'd be wouldn't be too difficult to do right okay it's easy to make changes when you when you're there printed because you can go in and edit it whereas this was like what they call grassroots kind of thing where this is all just people that are telling each other and every person that hand copied that, because that is a lot of work to hand copy it. They were, you would have to be really devoted to Jesus to say, this is worth it to spend hours and days, maybe a year copying the Bible. 
you'd have to be really devoted. So you're gonna make sure that's right, right? It's not just about doing a good job. It's about people's lives to you depend on this, their eternal life, all right? You're gonna make sure you do a good job. And because these are being spread out everywhere, and it's all different languages too, it's written in mostly Greek and then later Latin. Imagine trying to round up all of those manuscripts. If you wanted to change it and say, I'm gonna change the religion of the Bible, I want it to be something else. Imagine trying to round all those up. Surely you would not get all of them, right? You could probably get them in a region like a city, you could get them all, but not in the world. And to prove that there are worse cities where they did change some things. There were extremes. There were the Greek, um, or the like, the Byzantine and the Aramaic, or not Aramaic, Armenian. Sorry, were the two extremes where they had changed stuff. But when they got them all together uh, under Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. They kind of hammered some of those things out and they were like, nope, we're throwing, that's clearly not right because compare it to everybody else's and you changed it. Well, everybody got together and looked at their Bibles, right? That's another thing where God made it so it was easy. Now, here's some raw numbers because you're probably wondering, okay, but how many are there to compare? Well, these are just the ancient texts. In Greek. Now, there's other languages too, but these are just the ancient ones in Greeks. These are physical ones that we have today. Like, they're in the museums, like, stored away. Now, granted, some of them, you might just have one page mark. Some of them are much bigger, okay? But there are 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Like, these are original handwritten ones. Like, ones, the oldest, which is... titled P52, they've all got like numbers, and it's Papyrus 52. This one is 150, or yeah, 150 AD. It's 120 years after Jesus that they have this page from. And it's it's like the size of a credit card, but they have this one. So they can compare that to what you have in Mark today, or the Greek the modern Greek version, and they say, oh yeah, there's really no difference. It's the same. I know. So you can say in the Bible, that area, yeah, it's exactly the same as what Mark, who saw Jesus, wrote down. That's pretty good, right? Okay. Then there are 10,000 manuscripts in Latin that are handwritten. So those are like, think the Catholic Church, like really old Catholic Church. That's what the monks did. They sat there and wrote them down. And those are even more complete when you look at it. So, oh, I've got to skip some stuff here because I jumped out of order. Um, So the second part, so that's one way, that's one of the important things to getting an accurate story, history that's ancient, getting it, proving that it's accurate still today. The second thing that's important is how recently, um, like how close to the actual event somebody wrote it down. 
So the ideal thing would be, you know, you witnessed an event in history, you went home and you wrote it down that night. That would be perfect, right? Best, you didn't lose it in your memory. That would be very good. Well, that does not happen for ancient history. Do you want to take, you know, Alexander the Great? Talk about him sometimes, in, um, every once in a while. But he's a Greek. He conquered the whole world, had the Greek, arm, uh, the Greek Empire. Well, historians take all of the major things that happened in his life and like the history around his life as being true. They say, yep, that happened. Now, can you guess how long after his life the first copy of like written his history is about him? Close. It's 400 years later that we have the first, like we have a manuscript. I don't know if it's complete, but we have one. That, and there's only one that's about his life. 400 years. And that's taught in all your history classes is, yep, that happened, that happened, yep. Uh, nobody, nobody disputes it. Now, there may be people who say, well, maybe he might not have had... 500,000 chariots. It was probably less. He probably glamorously upped it. But he probably did win that battle. Okay? Well, the nearest gospel of Mark is 80 years from Jesus' death. The Bible, hands down, is the most accurate ancient story, whatever you want to call it, history. It's the most accurate. Now, the next one after that for the most that they consider the next most accurate thing from ancient history is Homer's Iliad. Have you guys heard of that one? Okay, it's like the story of Odysseus and the city of Troy and everything which really people don't I mean they say it happened but they're like okay there's a lot of like punching it up this is for dramatic effect right there are only Four copies total of ancient copies of Homer's Iliad. Four. That's it. The Bible, there's 5,800 in Greek, not even the other languages like Aramaic. And I didn't even write them down because they were just... There were another like 5,000 in these other languages, but they aren't the ones that are typically used. So... You say, all right, but that doesn't mean that what's in the Bible is accurate. Just because we have a story and we know that that's what they wrote down when they were alive, they could have wrote down whatever they wanted. True. That's true. Okay? And we'll even put aside that there are four different accounts, like four different people wrote stories that match up pretty darn good. Okay? We'll even, put, we'll even give them that. All right? That let's say that all of those... Well... There are secular historians that, that also wrote around the time of Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and a little bit afterwards. One of those, the most famous one, is Josephus. Okay, he was a Jewish historian. And you can even buy his book. You can read it. You can get it online. It's very long. I have not read it yet. It's on my list. Okay. But all of the names and like events that he puts down about Jesus and like uh, politicians and politics surrounding him they all line up with the gospels there's nothing that's in um, that where they butt heads about 
even the ones that have been pointed out in the past, a lot of them that said, oh yeah, but this, Luke talks about, here's one of them, this governor Cyrenius in his first chapter that was governor when Jesus was born. They're like, that guy wasn't there. There is, there's a governor Cyrenius, but he was, um, oh no, sorry, that's a different one. This one is, he, he wasn't there. Like There was a different governor then. That, that's not, he wasn't even around. That's a made-up name. Well, guess what they found in the past 50 years? They have found a stone in the Middle East where he was supposed to be a Ben governor in Roman documents that has his name and when he was governor in Judea from the days. So the Bible has accurate history that wasn't nobody else had, but the Bible has it, and that's proven by archaeology later. There's another one where Licinius is mentioned, and they're like, oh, but he was governor over there, not here, where the Bible says. Well, turns out they find another rock, and there were two Licinius's in history that were both governors, like, at the same time. It's kind of like, you know, there's a John that is in the government over here and a John that's in the government over there. Just a common name, but proven to be, okay? So, we'll come back. We're going to bring... There is way more. You could spend so much time. I just took out the necessary stuff. Coming back to Jesus, virtually there is no historian. And these aren't just like at a Christian university. These are historians no matter what their belief, that denies that Jesus existed. Nobody denies that. If they do, they're like some wacko out there, okay? <laughs> They've got, uh, they have other agendas, okay? In fact, they, they say, the experts, they are more certain of Jesus existing than of any other ancient historical person. Ever. Like, they're more certain that Jesus existed than anyone else in ancient history. Pretty good. I mean, that's like, you won, right? Here's the other thing. Almost no scholars, there, there are some out there. There are always, there definitely will, because this is the most important, one of the most important parts. But almost no scholars say that he did not die on the cross. They all agree, yep. Jesus died on the cross. They'll go that far. Now, the resurrection is a tougher thing. And I'm not going to get into it for time, but also because Nabil is going to address that. We're going to see his him go deep on that, on trying to figure out the resurrection and if it happened. But you guys are just going to have to wait until next time. And the next chapter is about Jesus the person. It's about the details of his death and a little bit of his resurrection is what we're going to look at, which is very much, very convincing. Last thing um, for everybody out there, that the youth retreat online is in six days. It's going to be different. It's going to be fun. So join us with that. Start Sunday, 
afternoon, evening, something like that. I don't know. You guys have this stuff. And so there is no, there will be no chapters read this week. There will be no Bible study on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. But the following Tuesday, there will be Bible study, and I will not have any chapters for you until Sunday and Monday before that Tuesday. And that's because I don't want it to conflict with the youth group because it's every night during the week. Okay, thank you very much.